being a banker for 21 years almost. That's okay. It's, it's going to fuel you. Um, it's still, I think, fueling me to this day. Somebody does a little bit more, should be waiting a long time. So people are just going to have to roll up their sleeves. Try to make sense of it because there's so much information coming in and you don't know what's, what's relevant and what's not. The corporate world, uh, for four years as a CEO, I'm not interested in having this small probability of losing a whole lot of money. You need to be surrounded by other smart people. Got me through the door because it's a pretty small group. And it's fine, Hello, everyone. This is your host, Mauda Maya. Welcome to another episode of the Finance Podcast, where I explore the professional journey of individuals who have successfully built careers in the financial industry. This episode is particularly interesting as we will be talking about COVID-19 and its effect on markets and how this will all play out. My guest this episode is Maria Jalesco Dreyfus. She is the Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Ardenal Investment Management, an investment firm focused on energy infrastructure that she started in 2017. Prior to Arnold Investment Management, Ms. Dreyfus spent 15 years at Goldman Sachs, where she most recently served as a portfolio manager and managing director in the Goldman Sachs Investment Partners Group. She currently serves as a director on the board of Macquarie Infrastructure Corporation, on the board of the CDPQ, one of Canada's largest pension plans, and on the advisory board of NENEX. She also sits on the advisory board of the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University and serves as co-chair of their Women in Energy program. Additionally, Ms. Dreyfus is a member of the MIT Corporation's Development Committee and sits on the MIT Economics Department's Visiting Committee. Ms. Dreyfus also serves as a member of the New York State Secure Choice Savings Program Board. Her current and past nonprofit board memberships include New America Alliance, Breakthrough New York, and Girls Inc. of New York City. She is a member of the Economic Club of New York and a member of the Milken Institute's Young Leaders Circle. Ms. Dreyfus has held her CFA since 2004 and holds a dual degree in Economics and Management Science from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Maria resides in New York with her husband and three children. So please enjoy my conversation with Maria. Hi, Maria. Absolute pleasure having you here on the platform this morning. How are you? I'm very good. How are you? Good, good. Thank nice you. <laughs> so before we get into understanding uh, your day-to-day role as CEO for an asset management firm, I would like to discuss your story. How does it all start? Excellent. You'd like me to... Um, yes, just an go. overall overview of uh, your professional journey. That's great. So let me, I mean, I'll start with the beginning. I'm Romanian, uh, born and raised. So I, uh, I was born and raised in Bucharest, Romania. And um, I was uh, really into science in, 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 in school and high school. And I came to MIT to study chemical engineering. Uh, and uh, somewhere along the way, uh, I switched to economics and finance. And um, I uh, spent a couple of summers uh, doing internships on Wall Street and then joined Goldman Sachs full time. And uh, I spent there most of a professional career um, Yes, 15 years. 15 years and have left uh, a few years ago to start my own investment firm. So, and its name, its name is Ardenal Investment Management. Yeah. And, uh, and we are an energy infrastructure investment firm. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to ask my next question. What are some of the biggest challenges you've encountered and how did you overcome those challenges throughout your career? 
Uh, well, I mean, in, initially in school, I think one of the biggest challenges was was the fact that um, I didn't have a background in 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 finance in in my family. You know, we didn't talk finance or business at the at the dinner table. Um, my parents were well well educated, you know, but not uh, not in the business or in the finance world. So when I went to MIT and I started taking economics and finance classes, um, you could you could clearly tell the difference um, and the fact that some kids really had a, a head start from from home and you know. Uh, for them, uh, finance was kind of a second language, and and you know, for me, English was a second language. So, so I I feel like I I had to work extra hard just to catch up on 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 that on that uh, later start, if you will. Um, but um, you know, I think uh, that was you know twenty five years ago, and uh, and I don't think that 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 matters anymore. So you know, you you gotta look at challenges and uh, take them on. Uh, uh, and think about ways that you could you could work whatever advantage you have in your in your favor and and fill in the gaps that you have. Yeah, well, really well said. I'm curious to know what drew you to the world of finance initially. Why finance? Um, it's actually an interesting story. And as I was telling you, I I went to MIT to study chemical engineering. So I started um, uh, as a chemi major. And the the nice thing about MIT, which I'm not sure they still have these days, is the fact that you only have to officially declare your major in the beginning of your sophomore year. So you do have a little bit of time to kind of wander around and explore the rest of, of, of the school. And it just so happened that I was intrigued in business and, and economics and finance. I didn't know much about them, but I started going to... Um, it wasn't even classes initially. It was just open houses and talks mm-hmm. and... Uh, I remember vividly there was one uh, one event where I went and um, um, it was given by Franco Modigliani, who is oh economist, Nobel yes. Prize laureate, and um, I'm not I'm not sure if it was the weather or it was just like you know midterm week or whatever, <laughs> but it was five kids and Franco and Franco Modigliani, and you know I was comparing that to my um, engineering courses where there were you know, tens, if not hundreds of kids in class. And I got to spend time with a Nobel laureate. Yes, that's absolutely without, amazing. Without knowing anything about finance. So the level of access that you would get, and at MIT, most kids go, go there to study engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, the economics, economics school was very, very small. I think there were 20 or 30 kids in uh, uh, as economics majors. And an amazing faculty, uh, including probably half a dozen other Nobel Prize winners. And the level of access and the level of one-on-one coaching and uh, and ability to uh, do research with prominent professors and spend time and office hours were with the full tenured professors. They were not with teaching assistants. So so that really was was very, very appealing to me. And then I started uh, being involved in they they did a whole bunch of trading games and uh, and seminars on markets and 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 learning how to think about stocks and how to value stocks and somehow I was really drawn to that and that's mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of how I switched uh, majors. That's a fascinating story. Yeah. Really, you got it. Yeah. Um, and now I want to fast forward to something you did say. You said uh, we know that you've spent 15 years on Wall Street working at Goldman Sachs. Can you explain to us a little bit what that experience was like for you? 
uh, Goldman was a fantastic place to be and to to start uh, to start your career. Um, I I joined the firm uh, right after the dot com bubble burst, and I actually joined the firm in the fixed income division. And I was lucky enough to to work and be involved in a lot of the corporate restructurings and you know all of the stuff that happened, the distress cycle post Enron and WorldCom, and um, and that was that was really a fantastic experience. And then I moved to the equities division in a group that was um, kind of the the prop desk of Goldman when when such a thing was was still allowed. Uh, before are you happy? Are you happy you're not in high uh, in fixed income right now? <laughs> you know, there's there's a point in the cycle for every asset class and and every strategy. Right now, probably not the best time for, for fixed income, but um, I had a great experience on the on the on the on the on the prop desk and. Uh, and then uh, after the financial crisis, uh, we actually got moved, my entire group got moved to Goldman Sachs Asset Management, which is the asset management uh, arm of, of Goldman um, set up as an investment manager. So we were managing third party capital as opposed to the, the, the firm's own money like we used to do before. So that gave me a lot of exposure to what it means to, 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 uh, to be in an investment management format, to run, uh, funds for for various uh, third party investors and it gave me a, a better sense of of the investor universe from uh, pension plans to uh, to insurance companies and high net worth individuals and the whole gamut yeah so i think this is really fascinating and i want to know the story behind ordinal investment management how did how did that come to be how did you take that leap to becoming ceo and founder of an asset management firm um well, the short of it is it was it was a firm I started, so it's not easy. It's not hard to become the CEO of a firm that you start yourself. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, how do you how uh, did you take that leap from leaving Goldman Sachs as a managing director? It's it's always hard to leave such an amazing platform as as, as Goldman's. And uh, and uh, in, in my case, I actually got a little bit lucky because one of the strategies that we were looking to do internally in my former group at Goldman um, was an infrastructure uh, strategy focused on Latin America. Mm -hmm. And for a variety of, of, of reasons, um, the structuring of, 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 of which became, uh, be became hard to do inside Goldman, given all the regulatory and, uh, and, and other constraints. So I was actually able to leave with that strategy and with their blessing. So um, I, I left with with a team and with a with a pipeline of deals. So um, it wasn't it wasn't me deciding to just walk away. Uh, it was a, a very cordial, mm -hmm. um, um, you know, I would almost call it a, a, a spin off, if you will. And uh, <laughs> I still work with them and uh, and uh, and have a lot of former colleagues and friends that I speak to on a regular basis, and we we do things together. And uh, and uh, I'm still very close to uh, to the mothership, if you will. <laughs> well, that's absolutely fascinating. Would it be possible for you to explain the philosophy at Ardenal Asset Management in terms of investments? Uh, we've we've actually done a, a very interesting, uh, I would say, uh, not pivot, but 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 re uh, rebranding of the strategy. So we initially started as a uh, um, as an infrastructure firm focused on Latin America. Mm -hmm. and, and that was the nugget that we left Goldman with. Um, but we've become more and more aware of the challenges that the energy and the energy infrastructure 
industry fa uh, face broadly, uh, primarily driven by by, mm -hmm. by the climate change. So uh, we found we found ourselves gravitating very naturally more and more towards um, finding solutions to the climate challenge and mm -hmm. focusing on green, if you will, investments and uh, and renewable strategies, focusing on you know, what we call the circular economy and on our ability to transition to a low carbon economy. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, it's, it's such a, it's such a, uh, a buzzword, but yes. there will be clear uh, changes in the world, in, in the mm -hmm. way that the world operates over the next yeah. couple of decades uh, in response to the climate challenge, whether we like it or not. And uh, um, we've, strongly believe that the the investments and the companies that will be able to align themselves mm -hmm. with these new tailwinds will be the the winners long term yeah so a, continuing what you've mentioned, so you've worked in the energy sector, The um, you know it really well, and you've been on the advisory board for Columbia University Energy Sector as well. And so could you explain to us how critical the environment um, around the energy sector is, oil and gas in particularly, as economies have completely shut down during this pandemic? Uh, sure. And it's, it's, it's not just, it's not just COVID related. It's, it's again, related to yeah. the fact that uh, the world is moving clearly in a certain direction and we need to do things to change that. So I believe environmental issues will become more and more uh, a driver of, of how we do things in the future. And by we, I mean us as individuals, companies, um, governments and countries. And you know how they say, uh, let's not let a good, a good crisis uh, go to waste. I think that uh, the silver lining here is that I expect the current situation to actually accelerate our mm -hmm. transition to this low carbon economy that I was that I was talking about, and the fact that environmental concerns have become top of mind, um, and and will hopefully continue to do so as we rebound from this crisis. And um, I'll, I'll give you a, a very simple example. Obviously, right now, all the the, the vast majority of the focus is on. Um, on injecting liquidity in the system mm -hmm. and providing liquidity for companies and, and individuals. Um, but we are likely to see a big wave of stimulus coming on the other end of the crisis. And uh, it was very encouraging to see um, some very um, interesting policies that uh, Europe has started putting in place as it relates to the stimulus uh, for uh, for 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 the post COVID world, in terms of green hooks, in terms of um, managing a lot of the stimulus money to have um, an environmental impact and uh, and uh, and to accelerate our our transition to uh, to a low carbon economy, uh, I think your guys' country of Canada has also been very proactive proactive about uh, about these things. We haven't quite seen them out of the U.S. yet, but I don't think that. Um, I think it's too early, and I think that there's uh, there's very strong momentum and uh, and reason to stay optimistic that um, we can make this uh, um, you know a, a, a climate a climate oriented recovery. And I would love to see the stimulus package include ways of uh, ways for us to uh, decarbonize our electricity grid, find ways to uh, reduce uh, CO two emissions from 
from the heavy industry, from the steel industry, from the cement industry, um, uh, different ways of thinking about transportation and the electrification of, of transportation and accelerating that, that, that really important trend. And uh, so then I, I really remain uh, very hopeful uh, in the fact that this crisis could actually lead to an acceleration in our, in our greenification of the world, if you will. Mm-hmm. So going, continuing with that, you run an asset management firm. And like you've said, this aid package has been sent out to help a lot of uh, individuals at risk for this economic contraction. We've seen the unemployment numbers. The data shows how complicated reopening the economy will be. Mm-hmm. Are you and your team betting on a V-shaped recovery, a W-shaped recovery, a U-shaped recovery, or any other letter of the alphabet? <laughs> well, thank you for not mentioning the L-shaped recovery. No one wants to even think about. Uh, I mean, the reality is that no one knows, Mara, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I think it would be foolish of any of us to be able to think that we have an edge in terms mm-hmm. of, uh, of forecasting how we would come out of this. Um, we're all watching it very closely. Um, you know, our ability to smartly reopen and partially uh, reopen our economies will be will be critically important. Um, a second wave is actually a, a serious concern and something that keeps us mm-hmm. all up at night. And I think that the shape of the recovery will be very much dictated uh, by whether we're able to avoid the second spike or not. Um, mm-hmm. And again, if I were a betting person, and it's not really the way that we like to think about investing, <laughs> if I were to to make a bet, I would say, unfortunately, it's probably not going to be a V-shaped recovery. So somewhere between a W or Nike swoosh or whatever you want to call it, uh, square root, all sorts of yeah. uh, <laughs> all sorts of different shapes. Uh, but again, I I think it's important to acknowledge the response from uh, from 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 governments, which has been very very strong and and as warranted because the the severity of the situation was was very very uh, significant. Uh, but I also think that we need to we need to best bet on human ingenuity and on the fact that we will find ways to collectively come out of this and and find find new ways of of running businesses and and working and operating and learning and. Um, and uh, making the world uh, move forward. Uh, so, so again, I am I am optimistic and I'm bullish on our ability as a human race to 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 make progress happen. Yeah. So we we've had many voices uh, on Wall Street saying how the V-shaped recovery it's it's a little optimistic. It's we're going to have a deep contra- uh, contraction in the economy, and we have this optimism that's built in. We have uh, Warren Buffett in his annual shareholders meeting talking about you need to bet on America, continue betting on America, and we will get through it through it. Which I think I think as a nation, you guys are prepared and always do come through. Um, hard situations, but the fact that a lot of people are thinking that the V-shape is is not going to be the most likely outcome. Why does the market seem to think so? We've seen that cash flows are going to be uh, deeply hurt for companies in the coming months. We saw earnings being revised quite aggressively. There's still much uncertainty that remains, like you said. Is the contraction not being valued in in markets right now because markets remain expensive? We're seeing a rallying of securities. So how, how does how do we explain that? Well, I, I think that there's a couple of, of, of aspects and a couple of nuances here. 
uh, right? The, the, the fact that uh, the recovery might not be so V-shaped and the market rebound are not necessarily uh, correlated. And I'll, I'll mm -hmm. tell you why, right? There's, there's, there's still a lot of uncertainties looming over us. But one thing that will probably merge out of this recovery is the fact that whether we like it or not, the big companies will get bigger. And unfortunately for the mom and pop, you know, small local stores and shops and restaurants um, and, and grocery stores, um, they will have a very hard time competing with the big mammoth companies. Mm -hmm. Those are the big mammoth companies who are, um, who are having a disproportionate uh, weight in, in our indices. So, uh, so, so in that, in that spirit, the fact that, you know, Amazon has rallied throughout yeah. this downturn, it's because probably the small grocery store and the small convenience store is not going to be able to make it on the other side. And it only makes Amazon as a business uh, that much bigger and stronger. Um, another aspect that is very, very important is, is the fact that, you know, we talked about the, 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 the policy response, which has been very, very, um, very, very powerful, rates have gone back to zero. And in the context of that, let's say anybody who owns fixed income securities you, in the U.S., you're looking at a zero percent return on your um, on your on your government bonds. And in that context, getting two, three, four percent dividend yields from some of the consumer staple companies, right? Like getting. 2% from Clorox, which will probably be more in demand with <laughs> this uh, um, uh, health, um, uh, public health uh, emergency, or, um, you know, Coca-Cola or, or McDonald's, and all of these names that um, they're, they have great franchise power, and they have dividend yields significantly higher than what you get on, on these bonds. So I think the, the rally in the, in, the, in the stock market is a clear reflection of the fact that you're seeing um, reallocations from fixed income to equities because no one, you know, if you are uh, okay owning bonds at 2%, you're going to be a lot less so owning them at 0%. Mm -hmm. So a uh, great answer. I think we covered that really well. Uh, my next question is what challenges and or opportunities does the coronavirus, the current pandemic, the crisis present for investors? As I, as I was saying a little earlier, I think it's, it's, it's kind of a tale of two cities. It's a lot of the, you know, haves and the have nots. So the ability to really um, look through uh, the, the business models of all these companies and, and be able to understand the real earnings power once we 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 come out one way or another from from this crisis is is very important. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, you can you can clearly think of not just companies but industries that will be uh, severely um, impaired in terms of their ability to continue operating the way that they have so far. So I'm thinking about the hotel industry, the restaurant industry, hospitality. You know, more broadly, cruise lines. Um, unfortunately, it's going to be. Um, dramatically different for them going forward. Even the oil and gas industry, in light of the fact that, you know, we've reached negative, albeit for <laughs> a very brief moment, oil prices, I think the oil and gas industry will will have will be forced to operate. At the same time, you know, you can see the winners of uh, of this uh, of this uh, of this uh, um, change in the economic uh, landscape. And you can see how healthcare, for example, will be a sector 
that is likely to be in favor and mm -hmm. where you're going to see more and more money being allocated to um, and, and obviously technology, right? And it's going to be, technology is going to be so much more prominent in everything that we do from, you know, the online learning and the mm -hmm. online courses that you guys do to our way of, of trying to operate and do business online to, um, you know, new ways to uh, get to businesses and consumer with, with better and better software um, offerings. And the fact that, uh, you know, we're in the very, very early innings of of, uh, of of this trend, I think, will only speak to how how much how much stronger such sectors like technology and healthcare will come out of this downturn. Mm -hmm. So that's fantastic insight on on your views and opinions on what current market uh, what current market and economic um, environment looks like. I want to move away from that and ask you more of a personal guidance questions. Um, as a woman, how do you balance your career and personal life for young, ambitious women who also strive for C-suite position and who also want to raise a family? What are the realities that they will face and what advice would you give them? Um, well, it's a, it's, it's a good question and everybody has their own opinion of what, what balance is and, mm -hmm. and, and what, how balance works. And, you know, one thing that I can tell you is that it's, it's very, very different for everybody. And we all try to optimize, but we all have different constraints around how we optimize between life, between work and, and, uh, and, and, and family. So, um, you know, there's different answers and whatever works for some people might not work for others. I know people who can operate on four hours of sleep. So in this whole balancing of, 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 of work and, and, and family, they, they can operate really well on very little sleep. Something's got to give, right? So the question is, if you don't have the ability to operate and function on four hours of sleep, how else can you optimize your day? And, and what I would say is think about things that you do well and think about the things that you don't do as well and try to improve the things that you don't do as well. Um, or, um, you know, uh, find ways to cut on downtime. You know, we all have downtime and we all... We all, to some extent, need a little bit of downtime just to 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 clear the cobwebs, but find find ways to 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 do it in in a more effective way. Um, so I would say everybody has different different answers to that, and there's no one rule that that works for everybody. For me, for example, I think what really helped me in my in my juggling of all of the above was was having the 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 luck actually to be able to have my home and my business and and my workplace very, very close by. So when I used to work at Goldman, I used to live near Goldman. So I would have a 10 minute walk every day to work. And when I left Goldman, I, I set up my, my office right next to it. And my kids' school is, you know, 10 minutes away. So everything is is within a 10 minute walk. And I feel that for me, not spending an hour commuting um, is actually the way I, I balance it. And the fact that Everything is kind of fine-tuned to uh, to a T, and I don't have any downtime on the subway or on the train or driving or and, and commuting. So that's what worked for me. Um, you know, there's different ways, and different different people have different um, have different answers. Um, you had a different question on on women in C-suite. Mm -hmm. Yes, and that's a topic that's very near and dear to my heart. The numbers, obviously, we all know, don't look great, and um, 
And uh, uh, the bad news is that there's obviously still a lot of unconscious bias in the industry. It's not just a pipeline issue. There's a lot of other things going on. The good news is that um, there's been increased focus on, on changing those dynamics. So um, it's, uh, it's very encouraging for me to see um, companies that are specifically focused on promoting women into mid-level management and upper-level management, um, providing women with the right mentor mentorship and championship programs that allow them to to rise to the to the to the top and 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 deal with all the challenges that come along the way, um, and uh, and the ability to create peer networks, right? Um, um, women's groups and I've personally found that very, very helpful in my career. Um, I've, you know, looking back, probably one of the most important and helpful uh, parts of it was the peer network that I created and the ability that I had uh, women who were going through the same challenges as me uh, uh, to reach out to and compare notes and, and, uh, and find ways we can help each other. Uh, and I see all of these things as becoming more and more a priority for companies, and I expect good things to happen as a result of them. So I'm, I, I remain very encouraged. That's good. Um, great to hear that there is positive coming out uh, more throughout the years. Uh, before we end off, I'd like to ask two final questions. Are there any resources, perhaps books, to which you would direct someone because it had some sort of impact on you? Um, in terms of finance books uh any book you can be <laughs> yeah you know i mean i i i think i think the finest books the classics are, are such a fun fun uh bunch of, of of readings that i would i i i would recommend that everybody kind of goes through the through the old classics the liar's poker the barbarians at the gate but realizing that that's not how finance works today, right? This mm -hmm. is the wild, wild west of finance, and it's very, very entertaining and 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 helpful uh, books in historical context, but not really what you're going to be experiencing in the finance world today. Um, but as a potential investor in the future, I really think that there's a few books out there that will help you um, and and your your fellow students, um, and will guide you in if you choose to become uh, to follow your your uh, to uh, to follow your your finance uh, to uh, pursue a career in finance and and those are you know the classics and without you know obviously it always sounds very cliche-ish when you recommend Buffett but Buffett's annual letters are a must read um, I think uh, Seth Klarman's Margin of Safety is a great book if you can get your hands on it I think Benjamin Graham's uh, uh, Intelligent Investor is obviously a classic. Uh, Joel uh, um, Greenblatt's uh, The Little Book That Beat the Market. All of these <laughs> really, really great books that will provide you know, anyone starting in finance a solid foundation that you can rely upon for the rest of your career. And, uh, and I think that those are not to be missed. Fantastic answer. Thank you for sharing that. What um, my next question is: What is the best advice that you can give um, an upcoming analyst, a young student starting university? What is the best advice you can give someone who is looking to have a considerable degree of success in their professional um, in their professional life? 
Yeah, I mean, again, without sound, sounding very uh, cliche-ish, I think the advice that I would have is think, think, think big and take risks. It's, it's. There's no better time to 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 take risks than when you're either entering or or coming out of college. The 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 world is your oyster, and and learn learn figure out what really really resonates with you. Uh, follow your passions and don't be afraid to change and to pivot. Study in school whatever you are attracted to, uh, whatever um, you're interested and 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 want to pursue. And and again, don't be afraid to change if the world changes. It's absolutely acceptable. But there was there, there's there's no worse feeling than you know the wish of could have uh, you know should have. Um, and 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 that's why I think it's it's a great time for you guys to to think big and think bold and follow your passion and don't worry as much about money. You know, I hear a lot of people wanting to come into finance because it's uh, it's a very lucrative uh, uh, career path um, that not, might not might not necessarily be the case today, or clearly not as much as it used to be in the past. But more importantly. Be good at whatever you decide to do. And if you are good, pursue it aggressively. Mm -hmm. Fascinating conversation. Thank you for being with us here today. Absolutely amazing insight on any on everything you've mentioned from markets to uh, ways to, su at, to succeed in life. So thank you so much for being here with us today, Maria. It's best a pleasure to, to be noise. with you and best best of luck to you guys for the rest of the school year. And I hope you have a great summer and uh, lots of success as you all look to enter your professional careers. That was my conversation. Absolutely fascinating conversation with such an impressive woman, Maria Jalesco Dreyfus. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I know you definitely learned a thing or two. I hope you guys are staying safe smart and inside your homes these are as we've seen the word been thrown around unprecedented times and we really need to work hard towards making sure that our medical staff is getting all the help they can all you really need to do is stay home and social distance so with that being said we have a lot more coming up remember to stay tuned stay safe guys <laughs>